Um, so good morning, everyone. Um, morning. Thank you for responding, Andrew. It's so nice to know that people are awake and they're with me this morning because... Ah, uh, look at that. Do you know what? I suddenly feel like a teacher. Good morning, everybody. You're meant to say Miss Skelly. Well done. A few of you have got it. That's great. That, that could have been me in another life, you know. I, I was very close to becoming a teacher, but I didn't. Except for in the context of the church, there's a smooth lead. And if you don't know me or you haven't had uh, the, the pleasure of meeting me, my name is Sarah Getty. I'm part of the teaching team here at City Hope Church. I've been a member of City Hope Church for a very, very long time. And I love the way that church is just family, isn't it? Um, and I love being part of your family. Uh, thank you for walking life with me. Um, and actually, as a family, we've been walking over recent months through the book of Mark. If you've been with us for that that's great. Um, so in the book of Mark, we've been looking really edited highlights of Jesus' life. If you know the book of Mark well, have I turned something off? No, no, no. Okay, there's a panic look at the back, but it's all right. There's a lot of technology involved nowadays in preaching. I've got different sets of wires. I've got no pockets. There are buttons everywhere. I, I find it a bit stressful, but it's all right, because once I get into my flow, I'll forget about wires. Okay, so as a church, we've been looking together through the book of Mark. So the book of Mark, if you've been reading it with us chapter by chapter, you'll know that of all the Gospels, it's one of the punchiest and quickest flowing. It's really like the edited highlights of Jesus' life. And our sermon series, even more so, has been like the edited highlights of the edited highlights of Jesus' life. So we've gone through the highs and the lows, the great miracles, the moments of glory, the times of struggle and pain and suffering. And the last two weeks, we've actually begun now what is a slow walk towards Jesus' death and crucifixion. So Beck spoke a couple of weeks ago about how um, the kind of tone of the gospel changes. Jesus starts to predict his coming death. The, the disciples don't really get it. So a couple of times, he's, he's telling them in different ways what is to come, what's to come for him. And they're struggling to get their heads around it. And it's in that context that my sermon comes this morning. So I'm going to talk about an account of something that happened in that build-up that tells us more about what the death of Christ meant for the disciples there and then and what it means for us as a church now. Um, I really want us to see, so this morning as we were worshipping, there's a real sense of Holy Spirit with us, Holy Spirit speaking to us, Holy Spirit provoking us. I want to make really clear that this morning, this, this sermon or, or this talk, this explanation is part of that same worship. It's like a sandwich. So in the book of Mark, you read there are, there are a few chapters that are like sandwiches. You get three different accounts and the account in the middle explains something of the, the two at the either side. This morning's a bit like that, right? So we've spent time singing about Jesus and who he is at the beginning. We're going to do the same at the end. What, I've, what God's given me to share is like the bit in the middle that's going to kind of give a bit more meaning and depth to that. But it's all part of the same thing. So I want to pray and then I'm going to get straight on to what God's been speaking to me about. Holy Spirit, we love the fact that your job is to show us more and more of who Jesus is. Lord, we desperately need to know who Jesus is. Lord, we desperately need to see him. Whether we've been part of church for years and years, whether we've known him for years and years, or whether this is the first time we've ever considered him, Holy Spirit, we need you to show us who he is. I pray that this morning, through, through all that we do, through all that we look at, Lord, that you would be revealed. Jesus, that we would know you better when we leave this place and how we know you now. Holy Spirit, be about your work. 
Holy Spirit, now in individual hearts, in us as a body, would you be about your work right now? Would you stir? Would people even feel your presence now? Lord, I pray for a tingle in hearts now that you'd be preparing us for what you've got to come. That now, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you raise our expectation? Would you raise our heads that we would see you, that we'd be ready from the beginning to encounter you, Lord? Amen. Okay, let's get going. I'm going to read together the passage that we're going to look at. It's a story that may be familiar to some, maybe not to others. I'm conscious that the font is small. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. That might help you, but I'm going to read it out loud as well. So it says, Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teacher of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people might riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar. She poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So in my intro I mentioned that in Mark we sometimes see these uh, kind of sandwich chapters or or, or sections where there's a story at the beginning there's a story in the middle and there's a story at the end but it's a story in the middle that really kind of contrasts to and makes sense of the story at either end so here our our filling in our sandwich is the story of this woman who in mark's gospel remains unnamed whose job it is to actually prepare jesus for what's to come to anoint his body for the burial that will come so actually in obedience to christ two thousand years after this account we're going to talk about her today and what she did. And as we do so, that's going to actually reveal Jesus and who he is. I want to set the story and the scene, right? Because all good stories have got a scene. And Mark wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience. So for them, the, the scene or the background of this account would have been assumed or known. But actually, over the last 2,000 years, we've, we've moved on a bit. And so actually, we, we miss something of the background and, uh, and the context that really draws this, this real-life account into, into colour for us. So, Mark begins his story by saying it is two days until the Passover feast. Yeah, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And to his readers, that would have meant an awful lot. That would have conjured an awful lot that to us is potentially lost. So I just want to conjure that up for you. I want to explain to you what the Feast of Passover is. And then I want to talk about what that might have meant for those there. 
So the, the Passover feast is a feast that was observed by all Jews. That's God's chosen people. And is where they together in a structured and ritualized way remembered a pivotal moment in their history. A moment when God pulled them out from suffering and pulled them into a, a promise. And a promise that they've seen partly fulfilled, but they're still waiting for God to do the rest. Right? So what happened was the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. They were slaves. They were suffering. It was hard. They were at the point of slavery where actually for generations that's where they've been. So no one could really remember what freedom looked like. It was a dark time for them. And they kept crying out to God. They kept saying, God, deliver us, deliver us. And they kept pursuing that, that cry. And eventually God acted in a way that showed them they'd been listening all along. Up until this moment, perhaps they thought he wasn't, but he was. And he raised up an unlikely hero in Moses who was himself an Israelite but had been raised in the Egyptian king's household. He raised him up and spoke to him and said, I'm going to deliver my people and I'm going to release them. And so Moses started going to Pharaoh to say, release them. And Pharaoh said no. And so famously, and you, you'll probably know this story, famously there were lots of plagues that then came across Egypt and they were kind of God's kind of bargaining chip, really, with Pharaoh to say, if you don't let them go, worse is coming. So there were lots of them. There's a plague of locusts, the rivers turned to blood, lots of things. And actually, while those came, because the Egyptians were, the Israelites rather, were in Egypt, I've often thought about how we always think of those as plagues that are on the Egyptians, but actually that's where the Israelites were, so they felt the pain of that as well, actually. So when the rivers turned to blood, that didn't only impact the Egyptians, did it? Because where did the Israelites get their water from? So it's actually a tough time. They're crying out for, to God to release them, and actually more suffering comes. And the release isn't coming. And it's, it's a tough time. And then Moses says this thing to me. He says, right, there's a plague coming that's the worst. And this is the one where you're going to see the deliverance of God you've been waiting for. This is harsh. Right, what's going to happen is an angel of death who represents the judgment of God is going to pass through the whole of Egypt. And he will cause the firstborn son of every family to die. Now, I've read that lots of times, right? And it's only in the last three years that I've had a firstborn son. So it's only now that I can imagine the terror that that brings. Probably the terror that some of us would feel as we have teenage kids and we look at the rise of knife crime and you suddenly think that could be my child. A bit like that terror, but more so because this is a certain death. Your firstborn son is going to die. But Moses said there's hope. The river of blood might have impacted you. The locusts impacted you. But actually, this one will not impact you. This judgment does not have to impact you because you're God's people. But what you must do is get a lamb who is unblemished, who is clean, who is perfect. You must sacrifice that lamb. You must eat from that lamb and you must paint your doorpost with his blood. And as you do that, and as the blood is on your doorpost, so the judgment of God will pass by your house and not touch you. So that is what happened. That is what the Israelites did. They obeyed. And I can't imagine the terror and fear of being in one of those houses as you heard the wails go through Egypt as mother after mother found their son dead. It's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty terrifying thing. But they knew that God had delivered them and they knew that the blood of lamb had power and they were released. And so when they have this feast of the Passover, that is the history that is in their mind. As a people, in a very structured and ritualized way, they are recalling that God brought real and powerful deliverance to them. But they're also remembering there's a promise of more. They're remembering that with that deliverance came a promise of a freedom that they haven't quite got yet. And so they're confident that a Messiah is coming. And that's what they're remembering so I want to talk just practically about them. The image, obviously, it conjures all that history. 
the Passover also conjures just some logistical things. So I've read, right, I've been reading about um, a historian called Josephus, who is a Jewish historian. Now, he estimated, because to, to re- recognise this Passover festival, they had to travel to Jerusalem. So in AD 66, about 30 years after the death of Jesus, so roughly the same time, Josephus estimated that meant that 2.5 million pilgrims came to Jerusalem to recognise this feast. If you can't, like if you're struggling to think then what that conjures or what the reality of that is, I also read up that actually during the 2012 Olympics here in London, actually only half a million foreign visitors came to visit our nation. And you'll remember how crowded it felt, right? The, the dynamic was different. It was tricky to get on the tube. There was hustle and bustle. Now imagine Jerusalem, a much smaller city, 2.5 million visitors were there. So the Passover had a real impact. There was a hustle and a bustle. There was a challenge about where are you going to be, where are you going to stay. Airbnb hadn't been invented yet. And there's a real challenge for where people are going to be. And actually towards the end of this passage, you pick up on that when the disciples are quite urgently asking Jesus, are you prepared for the Passover? Where are you going? Have you got your booking yet? People had to open spare rooms. It was, there was a, an energy about the Passover. It also meant something else quite practical It meant sheep, right? 2.5 million people had to eat some lamb. That's a lot of lambs. Now, I don't know much about sheep, so I've done some research, which is on my next page. But it's not. Where is it? It's on my next page here. It's a bit tricky, folding paper. So Josephus, the same historian who estimated 2.5 million pilgrims came, he also estimated, now I'm not good with big numbers, so bear with me, there would be 255,600 lambs that would have had to pass into the temple to be sacrificed, to give each person present one-tenth of a lamb to eat. That had to happen, because that is a ritual, that's what it is, Two days before Passover, I just want you to imagine what that means. Jerusalem was full of sheep. (laughs) Now, I don't know much about sheep because I live in London. I know more about rats. But I did do some research. And my research told me that one lamb produces in one day approximately four pounds of little pellety poo. Right? Four pounds. Now, if you've got 255,600 sheep... I did a bit of maths, right? Maths was never my strength, but I've got a calculator, so it's all right. And again, I'm not good with big numbers, but that works out as in one day, 1,222,400,000 pounds of poo. If you're struggling to visualise what that means, I did a bit more maths that works out to approximately 73 stone of poo produced per day from these lambs. So if you were in Jerusalem two days before Passover, do you know what was on your mind? (laughs) Lamb, right? Lamb was on everyone's mind. There was a hustle, a bustle. There was a noise. Lambs are noisy. Did they know what was coming? Did they not? Who knows? But there was a noise. There was a smell. Because it's hot, and that's a lot of poo, right? There was a smell of lamb. There was also a smell of an awful lot of spices and herbs being prepared, being chopped up. There was a noise of a knife being sharpened. That's a lot of lambs to kill in one day, right? There was a preparation going on. In that context, this is where 
what we're about to read happened. This is where this account took place. It's a bit like Jesus, a bit like Christmas, but more so, right? Imagine if at Christmas everyone's turkey had to walk down Drummond Road before you ate it. (laughs) There's a lot going on. And in that context... Jesus is having an intimate meal with his friends. He's at the house of a leper. The chances are that's one of the people that Jesus healed from leprosy. We don't know, but it's unlikely that people would have been eating at his house if he still had leprosy, right? It's an invitation-only meal. It's an intimate meal with his friends. There's a picture of intimacy. He's reclining at the table. It's not a public event. It's also not a female event. So culturally, this would have been male only because that's how it worked. And into that context, we introduce a woman, a woman who Mark chooses not to name, and she bursts into the scene with an alabaster jar that is full of very, very expensive perfume. She smashes that perfume and she pours it over Jesus' head. I want to talk a little bit about what that meant and what it was. So we're instructed to talk about her and to talk about what her worship looked like I've got C's. I can't help myself with alliteration nowadays. I honestly didn't do this on purpose. But I want to look at what her sacrifice was, okay? And I'm going to look under it uh, as being a sacrifice that was courageous. Her worship was costly and her worship was countercultural. And so it was heavily criticised. So it was courageous. Like this was not her house and she was not invited. It takes real bravery to overstep some of those boundaries that are put in. It takes real bravery to crash into a meal where you're not welcome and come and not only burst in, but burst in and do something that is a bit bizarre and something that is quite dramatic. It's not like she shuffled in at the back, is it, and decided to wait some tables and hope no one would notice her. She did something that caught people's eyes. It was dramatic. She wasn't hiding. She was willing to take whatever came with that, whatever uh, shunning or, or rejection or anything else. She was courageous and bold in her movement. That's what her worship looks like it was also costly so when you look at the disciples response they say that the perfume that she smashed uh, and then poured over Jesus could have been sold for more than a year's salary now I tie myself up in knots at this point right because we live in a in a culture where uh, I'm not going to get into this but where there's a lot of separation between the rich and the poor so I was trying to estimate what over a year's salary looks like here and it's a bit tricky because I know that for some of us that looks like one thing and for others it looks like something else and actually the point is it doesn't matter because Jesus isn't interested in numbers when Jesus calls her sacrifice costly he's actually not interested in the numbers he's interested in the courage and the heart and the reason I know that is because two chapters before, Jesus in a temple where people are putting all sorts of money into the offering, massive sums, more than a year's salary maybe, who knows? And who was Jesus' eye on? Jesus' eye was on a little widow who gave two tiny coins that amounted to nothing in terms of numerical value. And Jesus called her sacrifice the same word as he calls this woman's sacrifice. When he said that her sacrifice was costly, he wasn't talking about the value. He was talking about the value to the heart, and he was talking about the cost to her. And actually what that's about is putting all in, not holding anything back. The cost isn't about numbers. That's what disciples looked at. That wasn't what Jesus looked at. Jesus looked at the heart, and he knew the cost was even greater. So they're saying that the value of this thing was probably a year's wage or more. 
as a woman, the chances are she, she wouldn't have had access to that kind of money in any other way than that possibly being a family heirloom. That's the kind of assumption, because she's unlikely to be able to be earning that kind of money herself. Now, when she poured it on Jesus, what she didn't do is what sometimes we would do, which is to, to measure it out and put a little drop, right? She didn't, she didn't pour it politely. She didn't give him his allotted value. She didn't think, hold on, this is also my pension fund, so it's, a, it's appropriate for me to keep this percentage back. No, what she did was she smashed that jar. She didn't even keep the jar. She didn't even keep the opportunity for it to be refilled or to go back out and get some more. She absolutely smashed it, meaning that she lost her access to all of it. When she sacrificed that perfume to Jesus, she gave it all and she held nothing back. And that was the cost that Jesus saw. That was the cost that captured his heart. That's the cost that means 2,000 years later we talk about her. She didn't hold it back. She was also criticised for it. What she did was countercultural. I mean, we've already covered that she was uninvited. She was an uninvited guest to a male-only meal. As a woman, she went in, she did something dramatic, she did something eye-catching. She did something that was criticised by the disciples. There's a contrast here, you see. So Jesus was there with his intimate friends, an intimate gathering. We know the twelve were there. Judas Iscariot is mentioned by name later. He's one of the twelve. He's lived with Jesus. He's walked with Jesus. He's seen Jesus' highs. He, he's accompanied him. He's his best friend. And he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He criticises this woman. He says, what is she doing? How selfish. That money should have gone elsewhere. That money should have gone to the poor. He insults her. But in so doing, actually, they really insult Jesus. Because what they're saying to Jesus is, you are not worth that much. Jesus, you're worth a bit, but, but not that. Maybe, you know, a, a drop or two, but how could she not have held it back? How were eyes not on the poor? And then we look at Jesus' response and what he calls out about her sacrifice. So, Jesus' response is he says, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. See, Jesus elevated her status. Again, we were, uh, Chris spoke last week about how the disciples were desperate for an elevated status. If you haven't heard it, listen to it online. It was an, it was a, an inspiring preach, actually life-changing preach. But um, what he was talking about is how much the disciples were saying, let, let me sit with you in glory. Let me be elevated. And Jesus reminded them, no, the, the poorest among you is the one who will be elevated. And here, what do we see? We see that worked out, right? This woman has come in. She's done something that is criticised and shunned. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give her a place of honour. And actually, in 2,000 years, they'll be talking about her, not you. But I want you to not be confused by this line. I've been confused by this for a long time. Where Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with me, you won't always have me. We need to be really careful here to not think that means that Jesus isn't bothered by the poor. And that's the way you can read it. Sometimes, because it can't, there's, a, there's a logic to what the disciples are saying. Right? There's some really poor people, probably lots of them have come as pilgrims to Jerusalem right then. There, there's a logic, humanly speaking, where you think actually sort of what they say makes sense. And you kind of think, Jesus, come on. Like, they're right, that is a bit of a waste. Go and sort them out. But don't be confused, right? Because Jesus' heart for the poor is greater than anyone's. And if you're not convinced by that, read Mark's Gospel. 
Look at how he treated the poor. People where they said, oh, they've sinned, that's why he's sick. And Jesus says, no, actually, I'm going to come and reveal my glory in this. Actually, Jesus elevated and loved the poor. Jesus' heart is for the poor. His passion was for the poor. He came for the poor, not for the healthy, but for the sick. That's where his heart was. But yet in this instant, he says, no, right now, this is not about the poor. Right now, fix your eyes in the right place. You see, as the lambs were bleating outside, as the smell of sheep who hung in the air, as the sound of knives being sharpened was heard, and the herbs and the marinades were being prepared, what Jesus was reminding us is this is all about the lamb right now. Actually, right now, your attention should be on the lamb. There are enough visual aids around you. There's enough of a multi-sensory learning cue right now. This is about the lamb. The imitation lambs were being prepared to remind them of what Jesus had done. But actually, at this moment, Jesus knew that the smell of his death was hanging in the air. Jesus knew that he had warned his disciples, he had told them, that they were still missing it. And Jesus was like, here is a practical example. See, this woman was the most unlikely person there to get it in lots of senses. She was uncomfortable. She was the outsider. She didn't fit. She was criticised and shunned, but yet she's the one who saw the lamb and knew what he meant. And you might be here this morning, I don't know your background. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know if this is your first time in the church. I don't know if you've been uh, bullied and battered to get here. Or whether, like me, you've been part of this church for a long time. But actually, I want you to know that if you feel like an outsider, actually, you can see the lamb. You can get it. Actually, no one here is, is eliminated or disqualified Actually, this woman saw who he was when those who should have got it missed it. So, in all our services and all the times that we meet, God speaks. One way that he speaks is by highlighting his word. And actually, certainly, genuinely, without me and Dan talking about this, God has obviously highlighted this first because Dan's prayed it two or three times during worship. And actually, the whole time that I was preparing, this is what I felt God really put on my heart. In Romans 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. That's not an easy worship sacrifice, is it? Living as a living sacrifice, that is costly. That is really costly. It certainly is courageous. And it certainly often will be countercultural and criticised, but that is the worship that God calls us to. But the really key word to me at the beginning, it says, in view of God's mercy, in view, in full revelation of who Christ is, and what he has done in view of the mercy that has been poured out on us, in view of the fact that his blood over our lives releases us from the full horror of the judgment of God, the fact that we can be released from the sin that entangles and snares because Jesus knew that what was coming was that he was going to choose to die on a cross of wood in my place, in your place. When you get that mercy, when you understand it, when you have revelation of it, actually what flows out is that your life becomes a living sacrifice. Now I feel that there's a real prophetic message for us as a church that God's really stirring me with and that has actually been a thread all through our worship. See, a bit like the disciples in that room, it is possible to do so much 
and have your eyes on so much that actually you lose sight of the lamb. And that's what happened with the disciples. You see, the disciples were looking at the poor and so they missed the lamb. And actually, we as a church, we are surrounded by need. And we're doing a lot to meet that need. There are a lot of ministries in this church are about meeting needs of the poor. And I love that. And God loves that. Okay, so we have food bank where every single week people who are in poverty and struggling can come and be fed and know the peace and the lack of judgment that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus. We run fab where mums from the local community can come and find rest and fun and enjoyment with their kids. We run cap where people are ensnared in debt and poverty and can't get out. We help them get out from that. We've got like a million kids at this church and every single week we give them a place of fun and we show them who Jesus is. We like two weeks ago we're reminded about the problems of youth violence in this area and then we've had a reminder again with Jean who works with the street passers to help meet that and it's so possible to look at all those things and think come on we've got to do more we've got to get more going let's look at the poor look at the poor look at the poor and we miss Jesus and when we do that what happens is we start really watching the pennies carefully And we start doing our maths and our calculations and what's come from a good place in the beginning turns into a social enterprise or a government project that's really great. I don't want to criticise those things, but it's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is when we're consumed by the lamb. When we see the lamb. When we hear the bleats out the window and we smell the dung and we remember that actually the lamb is the reason for everything. When she saw the lamb, actually the sacrifice that was courageous, costly and condemned actually became a thing of beauty. So I really feel like there's something for all of us. There's something corporately, there's something individually. Like, I think it's right to, to confess and repent, and therefore we can all confess and repent together, that actually I massively am someone who, who struggles to keep my eyes on the lamb. Actually, sometimes I come to church on Sunday morning, and genuinely, sometimes, my main reason that I'm here is because I'm thinking about my to-do list. I sometimes even write my to-do list before I come, because I know there are rotors that need to be filled. I know there are things that need to be passed on. There are people who need to be served. In fact, sometimes even during worship, I've picked up the thing I need to give to someone. I've run and given it to them, so I don't forget later. There's a challenge for all of us that is weighty and real. Because Judas who did that went and sold Jesus. So I'm not saying that we're going to sell Jesus, but I'm saying there's a weightiness to saying we must keep our eyes on the Lamb. And God is calling us back this morning to have fresh revelation of him. It's a serious thing. It's a weighty thing. You can think you're doing the right thing and in the end you miss actually the best thing. And the best thing is for us to have our eyes on Jesus. And as we do that, actually what flows naturally is being a living sacrifice. It flows. You don't need to worry about that bit almost. You don't need to consume yourself with the sacrifice, consume yourself with the reason for it. Don't spend so long weighing out your nard and checking besides the alabaster jar, pour it. Look at the lamb and it will go. Actually look at the lamb and you won't hold it so tightly in the first place. We've got to see the lamb. We must see Jesus. God is calling us to that. That's what this life is about. And that's what this morning is about. So what I want to do this morning is actually I want us just to together to look on and meditate on the Lamb. Actually that is the right and proper response to look at him. To look at him. So in, in a minute Paul's going to come up and just help, help us with that, facilitate that. But as we do that we are going to meditate on the Lamb. Now for some of you here... 
I'm conscious this might be the first time you've walked into a church. This might be the first time that you've thought about Jesus. If that's you, as we read this passage together, as you dwell on it on your own, I want you to ask God one question. I want you to ask God, God, if you are real, if this is more than just songs, then would you show me something about Jesus as I read this? Show me one thing about who he is. You might have been a Christian for a long time and you might be here thinking, do you know what? Actually, I have been thinking more about the sacrifice and the cause for it. Maybe I have been thinking more about what I've got to do and less about the lamb and my reason for doing it. Then actually, as you read this passage, ask God to highlight one word to you that tells you something new of who the lamb of God is. That he would speak to you. I know that God is going to speak to us. I know that he is because that's the Holy Spirit's job. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to us to reveal to us who Jesus is. That's his whole job. So I know that he will speak to us. I know that he will show us more of the Lamb of God. So I want you to take some time now. If it's easy to read on the smaller screens, read on the smaller screens. If you've got a Bible with you and it's easier to turn to that, turn to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 to 13. And you can look at it yourself. It doesn't need to be on the screen. Do what you need to do. If you want to be on your knees, be on your knees. If you want to stand up, stand up. It doesn't matter. Actually, it doesn't matter what people think around you. Let's look together at the Lamb. This is our time to respond by dwelling on who he is. So they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. So these are the, the angels around the throne speaking to Jesus. Because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve you, God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands and ten times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.